Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. Uh, today is the last day of the series that we've been in for a couple months now, What to Do When Everything is terrible. And what we've been doing in this series is using all these weird bits of the Old Testament that nobody tends to read because they don't really seem to make a lot of sense. And we're delving in and saying, is there actually a a subversive wisdom? Is there a wisdom that's beyond conventional wisdom that maybe we can tap into and shows us what God might be doing beneath the surface of our lives um, when everything is going terrible? And we're going to be continuing on today. The last one, we're going to be a little bit different where we've been in the Old Testament for weeks. We're now going to be in the New Testament with the book of Revelation. Ooh. Um, I think we can all agree uh, this has not been the most normal of years. It's felt like um, just reading the news that it's constantly, we're stacking one thing atop the other. Like I almost wish at the beginning of the year, I was just handed a bingo card for like the 10 plagues that were coming after Egypt. You know, like, it, I don't know if any of you even remember in the midst of all of this crazy and this chaos when we had this Saharan dust cloud that apparently came across the Atlantic. And I remember sitting in my office looking out the window, and there's kind of this haze over the whole sky um, that wasn't really distinct. And apparently there's these Saharan dust mites that were in there that were kind of further complicating people's respiratory. But for me, I think the craziest story of the whole whole year had to be the murder hornets. Um, If you remember at the beginning of the summer, um, we got these reports that these Asian murder hornets had somehow made their way over to the United States and that they were living in Washington state and they're a major threat to our honeybees because they'll kill them and take over hives and everything. And that was just, it was just like in the midst of all of these rolling stories that we saw that And then it went away for a moment and you thought, okay, good. Maybe we got past murder hornets. That was just June or whatever. And we got to the end of the summer and then I opened up the news and I saw this headline. Murder hornets have entered the slaughter phase. Now I just think about this for a second. It's like the craziest headline that you could possibly come up with. Like, what on earth is a slaughter phase? It turns out that once these hornets get get themselves established in an area, they begin to go out and slaughter honeybees for just whatever reason. We are not exactly sure. But the the doctors or the, um, the scientists are trying really hard to capture these bees and, like, tack little GPS trackers on them or these hornets and find out where they're going so they can blow up their nests, which apparently... Apparently, they just did a couple weeks ago. There's, it was stories like that, that if it wasn't so serious and such an anxious, crippling year for us, it'd almost be funny just that these things keep happening. Um, and it just seems so wild. Um, but it really got me thinking, um, as perhaps it has for many of you, when everything is terrible, when we're just being like kind of hit in the face with wave after wave of bad news, when it seems like the world is falling apart at the seams and our society is collapsing, like 
as Christians, do we believe that Jesus is actually Lord? I know like there's been several points this year when even I've asked myself that question because it's very easy for us. The central question or the central claim of our faith is that Jesus is Lord. Um, When we're in normal space, it's very easy to hold on to that. But when it feels like things are out of control, we begin to question, is that really true? And if it's true, what does it mean? But that's what I want us to focus on today, that even in the midst of chaos, Jesus is still on the throne. And so today actually happens to be Christ the King Sunday. Um, If you know the church calendar next year starts all over, or next week starts all over again um, with the season of Advent, where we're looking forward to Christmas, the coming of Jesus in the form of a baby. And through the church calendar year, we tell the story of Jesus, beginning with this expectant waiting of Advent, um, the birth of Christ, of him growing up, his life, his ministry, um, and then his death and his resurrection with Easter, and then Pentecost or the beginning of the church. And we kind of walk the whole calendar year telling God's story over and over and over again so that it washes over us and immerses us and kind of informs um, our lives today. And we culminate the last Sunday today, the last Sunday of the church calendar is called Christ the King Sunday. So all over the world today, our brothers and sisters in Christ are really honing in on this image of Jesus as the King of over all the universe. And so I'm really excited about that. And what better way for us to do that than to look at the book of Revelation. So I want to I kind of give you some framework for understanding the book of Revelation. And then we're going to read a passage and just talk about um, what the the connotations are for this idea that Jesus is still on the throne. So, Revelation um, is the last book in the Bible, and it was written by a, a pastor in the probably the late part of the first century, um, you know, just a generation removed from Jesus's time. His name is John. We call him John the Revelator. Um, we don't know too much about him, but he had seven churches in southwest Turkey, but he, because he had been going about preaching the good news of Jesus in the Roman Empire, um, he was exiled to this small island that's off the coast of Turkey that's called Patmos. And so John has been spending all of his time immersing himself in scripture, which for him at that time was mostly going to be the, what we know as the Old Testament. He was immersing himself in prayer and he begins to write uh, this, this wild book for these seven churches of his as he's helping them to stay the faith. Now, what had happened at this point in time is that the Roman Empire was ruled by Domitian, who was a relatively benign leader when it came to threatening Christians. And there was relative peace within the empire. I say relative because the emperor before, Nero, um, really laid in on persecuting uh, rebellious groups of people like the Jews, um, and especially feeling very threatened by this new way, these Christians that were beginning to spread all over his empire. And so John is writing his letter to his churches in a time when it seems like there's relative peace. And this revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. And, you know, when we think of the word apocalypse today, we think it automatically means fire and brimstone, but that's not really what it means at its core. That's a lot of what has been kind of added onto the story because of Hollywood and entertainment. But the word apocalypse uh, really means to unveil or to reveal something that's going on. Uh, And I think that that's really important as we're reading Revelation to understand how 
how to properly do this kind of biblical literature. Because what the whole book of Revelation is, um, is heavenly impressions of earthly realities. I like to think of it almost like as a surrealist uh, play or a political cartoon. So for example, if I was to say, you know, uh, donkeys and elephants, you would automatically be thinking of Democrats and Republicans, that they're symbols for something that's tangible and concrete. And that's how the book of Revelation works. We're introduced to all these crazy characters. There's a beast, there's a dragon, there's a, there's a whore of Babylon, there's these two prophets and, all, you know, all, all these different monsters and everything that are working through it. It'd be a a really wonderful film if anybody could actually get the budget uh, to make it. But the real thing about Revelation is that it's it's intended, like a play, um, like a film, it's intended to be something that we experience and that we feel our way through. Revelation is not a book that's there to be literally analyzed. Uh, It's not a code to be broken. It's something that we have to allow to wash over us. And one of the fascinating things about the book of Revelation is that it's absolutely drenched in the Old Testament. This is because John is immersing himself in the scriptures constantly. And so there's uh, 505 allusions to the Old Testament in 270 odd verses. So it's really densely connected to the story of God and using a lot of the symbols of, of millennia past to try to accurately describe what's going on in the world right now. What is the thing behind the thing? And if I could sum up the entire book of Revelation, it's John challenging his churches of his day and by extension us with this question. Are you loyal to the kingdom of Jesus or are you going to be loyal to the empire of the world? And when we begin to read Revelation like that, we find that it might actually be one of the most important and pertinent books for us today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. So Heavenly Father, we testify, you are here, you are with us, you are for us, you're not against us. And today of all days, on Christ the King Sunday, we come to you as our Lord, As the one who rules over all, we stand in awe of you, we worship you, and we adore you. And Lord, I pray that in this time that we would open ourselves to you because we trust you to allow you to do whatever work you need to inside of us, um, to lay truth in our hearts, um, to, to, to you know, change us by the renewing of our minds. Whatever it, it is, Lord, we want to go where you want to lead us. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because the word of the Lord, or because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's him saying, you know, I'm in exile because I went about preaching about Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, 
I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. I love this image of Jesus from Revelation. Because if we're honest, a lot of us, we we love the idea of Jesus as our savior, maybe Jesus as our friend, or we think he's a really great teacher. But when it comes to Jesus as the king of the universe, the, the living one who is still alive today, well, we don't always know what to do with that. What do we do with the apocalyptic king over all, the judge of the whole universe? This is the image of the heavenly Jesus, perhaps even like the realest, real version of Jesus. And, and when we contend with that kind of Jesus, perhaps you and I, our response would be a lot like John's, where we fall down as though we're dead. You know, it's so funny to me that we do Christ the King with this image of Jesus, and then we begin Advent where we're looking at, you know, the infant Jesus in the manger, so meek and mild. And we have to hold together all of these images if we really want to have a fair understanding of who he is. Because you and I, we don't get to pick and choose which Jesus we follow. You know, we don't get to make him in our image or more palatable. Like, I like baby Jesus, and I like, you know, Jesus the teacher, and I like Jesus overturned, you know, overturned the tables. No, no, we need all of it if we're actually going to worship him. And one of the most powerful images to me in this passage is that this version of Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. It's protruding from his mouth. And this is a reference um, to two places in Isaiah where it's speaking messianic prophecies about um, the coming of the Christ. In Isaiah 11... Um, the, the prophet is speaking of God's coming to, uh, to bring justice to the world. And he says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And then later, the, what you might know is the passage about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 49, um, the suffering servant says, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And so what, what uh, John is trying to communicate to his churches, by extension to us, is that King Jesus speaks the truth that cuts the world open. That Jesus doesn't come with a sword in his fist ready to to slay and to kill, but he comes out of his mouth because he speaks a truth that reveals that, that, you know, I love that King James, you know, that that cleft in twain. It, It splits things in two and reveals what's really going on there. Cuts open the facades and the illusions that we like to maintain in order to understand how the world works. 
And I love that even in this passage, John speaks of himself to his churches and to us and saying, oh, I'm a companion in suffering. Because this version of Jesus doesn't discount your suffering. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. But sometimes the suffering is the evidence that we're alive and we're present and we, we're feeling things. We're, we're living in the reality of trying to stay faithful to Jesus. But I love that here we see in Jesus what we see time and again in the scripture. Whenever God reveals himself to people and they're terrified, the first thing he always says is, do not be afraid. And so this apocalyptic vision of Jesus, this terrifying vision that that causes us to fall down as if we're dead because we're so afraid, he still has that tenderness in him that he reaches down and he reassures us and says, don't be afraid. I see your suffering. I see your pain. I see your exile. I see you're crazy. But don't be afraid. And so that veil between heaven and earth, between illusion and reality, is pierced by the truth that Jesus speaks. And what do we discover when that revealing happens? You know, this year, I've been thinking a lot about this word apocalypse. As I've said uh, a couple times already, that was the word the Lord gave me in January. And I thought it was just for me in my own life, but it turns out like it's actually maybe kind of for everybody. Because if we're going to be honest, we've seen a lot of apocalyptic signs and symbols like dust clouds and murder hornets this year. Um, But as I've meditated on this idea of apocalypse and what it actually means, um, I've had this really powerful Uh, new revelation. That apocalypse means that God may not be doing a new thing, but revealing what has until now remained hidden. You know, we love progress and novelty and newness. We, We talk about vision, but a lot of times we really mean branding. Like we're looking for what's the new thing? What's the next thing that God is doing? And so we always have this expectation that that's what we're getting from God. But what if it isn't necessarily that this year is a year where God is doing something new, but that God is revealing something that's always been there, but because of our addiction to comfort, it's just lived under the surface. But now, because truth is splitting open our illusions, we have to contend with what he is showing us there because we can no longer afford to live out of privilege and comfort and the illusion of control. So what I want to do is I want us to take some time today, Christ the King Sunday, to sit before the Lord and allow him to reveal to apocalypse to us um, what is beneath the surface. And we're going to look at this in kind of four different areas that I think are especially important for us uh, to pause and reflect on. Number one, about our nation. Number two, about the church, the capital C church. Uh, number three, our community, City Beautiful Church specifically. And then number four, for each of us personally. So um, I'm, we're going to put up a question um, on, on the screen for about 30 seconds. And I just want you to sit openly with the Lord and reflect. And maybe you know, take out your phone or a notebook and just, just make some notes of, of some of the things that you think in this season have been revealed. Okay? Everybody with me? You know what we're doing? Okay, great. We have to slow down. We've got to do this kind of work because it's important that we keep coming back to him. So... Here's the first question. What has been apocalypsed 
in our nation, in the United States of America in 2020, what is being apocalypsed? Let's take 30 seconds. It's been a wild year for our country. And not just for our country, for countries all over the world. Um, even speaking with my parents in France and finding out what's been going on there over the past several months in the midst of the pandemic. And I think what I see when I look at our country is that it almost feels like there's two pervading social imaginaries. You remember we talked about social imaginaries several months ago, that it's the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that motivate the decisions we make and the attitudes that we have towards other people. It's kind of more, more than just a worldview. But we have these two pervading social imaginaries that are rising up in our country that almost make it feel like we have two different visions of what this country is supposed to be. We definitely live in a house divided. I think the election showed this. And as I've kind of observed and listened, and, and especially trying to listen as a Christian first, and then as a naturalized American, because I've only been a citizen for a year now, I'm so fascinated in listening to the thing beneath the thing. Like, what, what are the assumptions that we all make that, that pit us against one another? And what I hear is often that there's these two core values that we say we have in this country. They're written into um, the Declaration of Independence uh, of freedom and equity or equality or um, kind of justice for all. And I've realized that when we take that upon ourselves, that freedom means I get to define who I am and I get to do what I want, that automatically pits itself against equality. Because in, in what's happening within our country and a lot of other countries is that the more freedom I have, the less opportunity there is for equality because um, I'm not going to give up space for other people. I have my rights. But the more I pursue equality, the, the more I'm asking of people's freedom. And these two ideas, freedom and equality, quality are battling themselves out and, and, and polarizing our country. It, sometimes it feels like, you know, the centrifuges that they use um, in chemistry to kind of peel apart chemicals. It feels like our country has been in the centrifuge for 50 years, which is just throwing all of our thoughts and ideas to the extremes where these ideologies are taking over that we, do, we can't actually talk to one another anymore. And that we don't even know how to agree on the foundations of what is truth and how do we read information. And this year has been a year of reckoning. It's bringing all of that to the surface. We've seen it in the conversations around race in our country where a lot of things that have been buried for a long time are, are kind of coming up to the surface again. We've seen it in nationalism, which kind of is an idea that goes beyond just patriotism, being proud of where you're from, but refusing to be uh, self-reflective on our country and where it continues to need to grow to become a more perfect union, not just that it's already there. But we see this identity politics where I am my beliefs, my value is found in who I just voted for three weeks ago. And for anybody to critique that is to critique me. And these ideologies are making it so that it's 
incredibly difficult for us uh, to engage with one another. And I know many of you are feeling the weight of that. I've been talking to several of you the past couple weeks of, of what it's doing to your families of what it is to, to even realize within yourself, you know, places of, of privilege or how you have remained ignorant of, of what's going on in our country and around the world today. And it feels overwhelming. But these are the kinds of things that we get to bring and lay at the feet of King Jesus. So number two, second question I have is what has been apocalypsed in the church, the capital C church uh, today? So let's take 30 seconds and just reflect with the Lord. biggest thing that to me that has been revealed about the capital C church today is it has to do with our allegiance to Jesus as our king. And I think that that is paramount now more than ever. The temptation that we were seeing in the early churches for John the Revelator was because there was relative peace with the empire, that we can just kind of go along with culture, with society, um, because it's being nice to us now. And I think that has been revealed, certainly in the American church, but I think in the church around the world as well, is that too often, as Christians, we have sidled up and made bedfellows with the surrounding culture. And it really brings into question who it is that we actually have faith in. When we say that we have faith in Jesus, does it really mean we have faith in our denomination? Do we really have just have faith in our leaders, our political parties, in the Bible? All of these things are being drawn up, and you've seen it in a lot of the ideological struggles that have happened this year. Where I think, like Beth Moore said at the beginning of the year, that God is bringing a reckoning to the American church to really reveal where we have been unfaithful. And one of the things that we've recognized across the nation this year because of the pandemic is that the numbers have starkly fallen of people, you know, tuning in on Sundays to, to their local church congregation. And there's been a lot of panic in that. Oh my gosh, are we losing an entire generation or what's happening here? But I remember reading one assessment of that data that was quite sobering that said what's happening this year is that the pandemic and all of the things that are happening in our society today are actually separating out the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. And that was really sobering to me that when all of a sudden it's inconvenient to be a Christian or it's really just flat out difficult to stay faithful, to stay connected, to continue in the rhythms that keep us in intimate union with Jesus, people begin to walk away. But what if this has been an era for the church where it's less about people walk, losing their faith, but more revealing what kind of faith they've had all along? 
And I think the biggest revelation for me in all of this was when I was teaching on the gift of pastor over the summer and recognizing, oh my goodness, we have generations of Christians who have not actually been pastored. They haven't been shepherded. They haven't actually been discipled. That, you know, 50 years ago, they got a lot of butts in seats. But once people got into the church, we didn't, we didn't really do anything with them because it was about the numbers. And when there's a lack of discipleship, and shepherding, ideology and indoctrination takes over. And we've raised generations of Christians who are so ideologically motivated that it's about these statements of belief and it's about coloring inside the lines and it's about behaving ourselves and making sure that we have good, clean doctrine and so little bit of it actually has to do with faithfulness to Jesus. And I think that that is being revealed right now. Several years ago, the Lord gave me a word that our generation was going to recapture the place of discipleship uh, within the church. It was a season for us to shore up within the faithful what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus and to be discipling one another. And I think we're seeing that happen this year. All right, number three. Number three question. What has been apocalypsed in our community, in City Beautiful Church. Let's take 30 seconds. I think one of the biggest things for me that has been apocalypse this year that's been revealed is how I value the idea of doing church or what are the measurements for success that I would use as a pastor? Because one of the frustrating things about this job is that there, it's, it's hard to point to something and to say, oh, this is what success is. And too often what happens in the church is that we grasp at what we find in business models for tangible measurements of success. And in church, it usually becomes how many butts are in the seat and what are our finances like? Because they're, they're, there's data there for us to know that we're doing something. Stories are a little bit more intangible measurements of success. And it's, it's so ironic. This, this year, at the beginning of this year, I felt like we have this incredible momentum as a church as we were marching toward Easter. There wasn't anything that I felt like we were doing particularly new or different, but our numbers continue to increase. Before, um, just before Easter, we were hitting 120 people on a Sunday. It was really amazing. It was like the largest that we'd been in a while. And I started to feel really good about us is like, oh yeah, we're, we're beco- really becoming a successful church, all this work we've done. And then boom, the pandemic hits. We have to go remote. We have to scramble to get everything online. The first couple Sundays, we've got people tuning in and everything's going well. And then you just watch the numbers steadily decline over the past eight months. And it really begins to mess with your, with your assessment of what do we mean when we, to do church. But then we begin to realize, well, maybe it was, it's not necessarily about um, just, you know, coming together on a Sunday and having a really great light show and preaching really great sermons and really emotional worship or uh, online presence or whatever. Like, it, it forces us to come back to what's the core. Are we still fulfilling the mission of the church, even if it's in the midst of a pandemic when we're in isolation? 
And a couple months ago now, a month and a half ago, we had all of our leaders come here to the building and um, we worshiped. There was a, a wonderful couple from Journey Christian came and led worship for us. And then I sent our leaders out all over the building to just take a period of time and to pray and to ask the Lord what is being revealed in this season within our community and in the Capital C Church and how could that inform our vision for 2020. And it was so wonderful to hear from our leaders, your leaders, the people that are leading these ministries, our elders, staff, um, went to go over everything that they felt like the Lord was showing them and the amazing answers that they had to that. I remember one of them specifically said, and they didn't put their names on them, so I'm not sure who was who, but you know, when everything fades away and we can't do the light show and we can't put on the, the worship night or whatever it is, it, it comes down to loving God and loving people. And time and again, our leaders were recognizing our priorities need to be aligned with God's priorities, that we still need to be the faithful church now, even though it is harder, it's less convenient to do things the way we've been doing them. But can we still be faithful? And that was so encouraging to me, and I'm really excited to see what God does in that, in that ilk in 2021. All right, the fourth and final question I have for you, what has been apocalypsed in your personal life this year. Let's take 30 seconds. thing for a lot of us this year has been when I have to slow down, what are the thoughts and the feelings that rush into that space? <clears throat> because if we're honest, a lot of us, because it's just a kind of normal part of our society, we're always moving from one thing to the next. There's always something on the horizon that's catching our attention. And we're always go, 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 manifest destiny, onward and upward. Let's keep producing. Let's keep striving. Let's keep having vision. And then this pandemic has forced all of us to have to slow down. And for many of us, I know it has been for me, and perhaps it's for you, when you slowed down, you kept trying to fill the space with other things to prevent yourself from having to go beneath the surface. But when we have the courage to do that, to begin to take inventory of our hearts, of our thoughts, of our stories, you know, where we place our confidence, that's the place where God really begins to do some amazing work because all of this is coming up to the surface, it's being revealed, it's being apocalypsed. I realized this year, I'm not very good at grieving or mourning, that I kind of tip my hat at the difficulties of life, but then I just kind of move on. I don't really give myself a chance to feel those things. And so prompted by the Lord, 
several months ago, um, I went up to North Carolina on a quiet retreat and I did a lot of hiking and I did a lot of journaling and praying um, and trying to simplify my life as much as possible just to hone in on these things. And I worked through family of origin stuff. I worked through beneath uh, the surface emotions. I worked through some of the woundings that I've received in my own story. I did a lot of work on where my priorities lie in life and the things that I'm pursuing. And it was it was hard and it was embarrassing to, to see some of these things written out and to hand them over to the Lord. I mean, I spent you know, up to five hours a day just working through things, um, but it was so good and it was so needed for me or else I would have never taken the time to allow God to apocalypse some of the things that I know that I need to address. And so coming back, I was able to know I need reinforcements, you know, to, to enter into new relationship with our elders, to ask them to pour into me, um, to invest in a, a pastoral coach who's helping me learn how to do this job, um, to start going to therapy. I have an amazing counselor now who's there to kind of help me work through those deepest parts of my life, um, to really have that conversation with some of my dear friends to say, I, I want you to enter into this stuff with me because I believe in you and I trust you. And I think for myself and for many of us in our community, we've had to come back to these questions of personal devotion to Jesus. That the convenience of going to a worship gathering for a Sunday morning for an hour and a half and maybe going to a Bible study on Wednesday, like that doesn't cut it anymore because we can't do those things. But when a lot of our potential religious crutches are taken away, how do we center in on our relationship with Jesus? How do we maintain loving union with him? And it's been a joy of my life in the midst of this pandemic to help many of you in terms of spiritual direction, like honing in on the, the rhythms and the practices that you need to stay in loving union with Jesus. Okay, so what's the point? Why does God reveal things like this? Why does God bring the apocalypse I think it's in order to invite us deeper into his kingdom reality in places in our lives and in the, ch the life of the church that maybe we didn't even realize we haven't really given over to him. And so in a word, it's really about repentance. It's about changing the way that we think about things because the worst thing that could happen would be for us to return to normal life, you know, post-pandemic um, when we all have the vaccine and we can get back to, you know, running things as normal, the worst thing that could be happen would be for us to enter back in without having learned a thing. And I, I fear that so many of us and so much of the church is just trying to rush back to doing things as normal without having paused and slowed down and asked God the difficult questions to show us what's really going on and what would you actually require of us. Because all the greatest moves of God happen through apocalypse. I think it's actually the key to revival. I think that's where revival comes from is when we open up our lives to God and say, show me what you see there. You know, as Daniel, or David says, like, reveal to me my anxieties. Let's do this. And when we can be a penitent people, an apocalypsed people, God will bring revival and resurrection. And I think the things that God reveals in our individual lives, in our communal life, in our national life, when we can articulate those things, it begins to give context for what we mean when we say 
Christ is King. Jesus is Lord. And the more that we open up our lives, the more that we turn to Him and allow Him to do His kingly work in those spaces, the gap between heaven and earth begins to close. So, my friends, last day of the church calendar, 2020, in the midst of all of this chaos, Jesus is still Lord. Welcome to the apocalypse. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.